Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WHAT, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the old tutoring center suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for our non-traditional campus. My name is Grace, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Julie, and my pronouns are she, her. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be the hosts for this podcast, so let's get into it. Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What's Up. So good morning, Grace. How are you doing today? Good morning, Julie. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I'm excited for today's podcast because we have Amelia again, which I'm really excited about. Amelia, would you like to introduce yourself real quick? Yes. Hi, Julie. Hi, Grace. My name is Amelia Shelley. I am the peer recovery specialist at Jack and do peer recovery support and lead meetings. All those lovely things. If you want to learn more, go back to these lovely folks podcast from earlier. I'm glad to be back and chat with you. Yeah, we had um, Amelia on the podcast January to discuss dry January. So um, that was also a really awesome episode. And Amelia offered a lot of great insights as well. So highly recommend. Um, and we also kind of go more into detail about what peer recovery support is and um, what the program is at PSU. So I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast, Amelia. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about um, drug and alcohol use in the queer community, um, which is definitely like a pertinent topic all year round, but it's also we're kind of getting closer to Pride Month. So it feels extra timely to talk about this and celebration of queerness and all that jazz. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. I am so excited for pride, namely because I've been such an introverted uh, queer that I'm like, okay, like maybe I'll actually do something this year. (laughs) Um, Yeah. First, I think it would be really remiss if we didn't acknowledge how crucially important and beautiful and celebration, like you said, Grace, a celebration of life, like you said, Grace, is um, partying and bars and the community building that happens in those spaces in the LGBTQ community, um, both historically and present. These are hubs for celebration, political organizing, joy and safety. You know, especially in urban areas, it's a very different situation rurally, and that's a whole other topic <laughs> for sure. Uh, but these are institutions uh, that were specialized for us and, you know, under the radar for in safe havens for a reason. And I want to be clear, like, as a peer recovery specialist and former nightmare drunk, Uh, I think that drinking and drug use is just fine. And there is so many ways that that can manifest. Some people can use those things really healthily. Some people can have periods of problematic use. And sometimes we slide into addiction and we need help getting out of that grasp. Um, And catastrophizing LGBTQ folks as a whole, like A, plays into that like old fashioned homophobic notion that being gay is a mental illness or that queer folks are like somehow doomed to a series 
lots of unfortunate events and it's totally inaccurate. Um, and there are actual hardships with largely like societal, like bigoted roots, not in actually being queer. And we have used bars and nightlife to celebrate, um, I'm using that word a lot, but it's so true, but to like celebrate being ourselves and feeling free for centuries. Yeah, that's a really good point to start. Like you said, it's okay for you to keep using the term celebration because this kind of culture that has been, it's not something new, you know, like the nightlife um, and all that. And so people, there used to be like, how do you say it? Restrictions to it, you know, and people are limited to such actions and activities. And I feel like in modern day, we think it's new just because it's more popular where people feel like they can express it than back then where there are stigmas around it, um, which kind of prohibits these folks from going out and just enjoying it and being able to build that community that they feel safe in. Um, For me, I feel like we aren't there yet where we can have like a very, very safe community to protect these folks. But I feel like we're at the point where people are not afraid of expressing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're totally right on. And like, it really depends on where you are, for sure. Like in Alabama, they just, you know, criminalized and made it a felony for doctors to help trans people of any age children or not transition and they're like forcibly detransitioning people so I want to acknowledge that and we have been as gorgeous gorgeous gays like become more visible and sort like accepted for sure and sometimes we could still be siloed and isolated into like here's like this niche community and like here's a pride celebration parade once a month and oh look at that let's take a picture you know Um, and, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so that's like a lot of my experience of like really conservative mindsets and coming to Portland is like a breath of fresh air, because even if there are like unfriendly elements and dangerous elements for trans family, especially like it is like much more comfortable to be out, even if there isn't, like you said, like that kind of cohesive, larger society integration that isn't just about like, oh, you're gay. Like, who does what? Are you a top or a bottom? You know, that kind of shit. <laughs> that that distinct othering, if that makes sense. And to have our like literal safe spaces is still really important. And I'm trying to remember what you said. Can you remind me? <laughs> no, you're good. No, yeah. We were just uh well, I was just saying how like um yeah, like, I mean, you did a great job encapsulating the idea of creating like a safe space. And because I don't know, you know, how toxic our society can be when it comes to judging. And that's, that kind of exacerbates it, which we're going to get into eventually talking about the statistics of drug use among the queer community and how it has been how it worsens with the way that society looks at these and like treat folks from these communities, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, which we can like, if we, I mean, if you want, we can like continue to talk about the historic aspect of uh, the nightlife, or we can jump into um, the statistics and like the drug use of like, and like recovery among these communities. I think we should definitely touch on the history for at least Mm -hmm. a bit. Um, 
just because it gives so much context to the current topic that we're going to be talking about. But without historical context, it's kind of just like not yeah. all there. So, um, yeah. If- I think the prohibition piece was really fascinating, too. So gay bars and nightlife have been like our, the social and community centers in queer communities for centuries, you know, places where people under our, the umbrella in our Western world, at least, have felt the safest to express their gender, sexuality, and carve out spaces of their own to like have a place to be free from societal stigma in various, you know, fluxes of acceptability. Uh, Not only to like find community and party and feel free, but also to organize for equal rights and fight back against discrimination. Like most famously in the US is Stonewall Inn and Marsha P. Johnson. Those three days of riots for trans and gay rights and liberation in New York in the late 60s. All those vice laws to stop being criminalized for being gay and trans. Um, Be gay, do crimes. (laughs) Liberate yourselves. Uh, You know, there were masquerade balls in the 1890s Oh, maybe these huge parties and intersectional queer community building in areas like Harlem and San Francisco, New Orleans in the 20s, like the Prohibition area. Uh, and there's also the Harlem Renaissance, huge, beautiful nightlife uh, during this Prohibition area. So all the partying and drinking and like drug use and like cocaine wasn't illegal. So like naturally, duh. <laughs> why not? I mean, you know, be safe, you know, don't, you know, all those things. But <laughs> at that time, like that was the jam. Uh, and prohibition played a huge part in funneling nightlife into, you know, more underground communities like queerness and with more people of color. Alcohol brought people together and gathered them in these new combinations. And the Harlem Renaissance was in full effect. And all these white LGBTQ people found out about the clubs and societies in Harlem's, you know, Black LGBTQ performers and would mingle. Suddenly, when everyone was on the search for illegal alcohol, people of different intersectional identities and queer life came into contact with one another. There's a drag scene and like lesbians and bi and like blues and jazz performers. And within these, within these communities, there was a huge deal that happened with coming out. It wasn't just, hey, I'm coming out of the closet, family, I'm gay. It was like this debuting, like Southern Bells kind of thing. Like, here I am, celebrate me. I'm living, I'm connected with this community. And that was a huge part of bars and nightlife and like where this part of the culture comes from. And then eventually they were, after World War II, there were vice laws and sodomy was uh, illegal and all these really harmful, strict gender binaries and sex binaries. which continued, especially into the AIDS crisis in the 80s, and bars and nightlife places like became hubs for fundraising for different patients and like people who had contracted the virus, and community building and awareness and political organizing around this. Um, And so these places have been vital to our survival and have I'm totally positive reduced the amount of 
depression and isolation and, you know, suicide rates because there is, there is, has been that connection. And that obviously is still a problem. And addiction rates as well, you know, those things can really be connected for sure. But without community, you know, we're nothing. We need, we need, we all need someone. And that someone can lead to more someone. And that is so validating on the surface. Humans, that's what we need. Yeah, and um, I think that's like a really good segue that you brought in from like, would you consider that like historic trauma for these folks who are like, like what you were saying, how at least like addictions and drug usage, do you think that has to do with like historical, historic trauma from what happened in the past? I love this question. I think that there are definitely parts that there is definitely trauma that as gay people and especially, you know, black indigenous people of color, people who are also gay, like experience within our culture or dominant culture. So that plays into relational patterns and, and new normals of, oh, you know, there's binge drinking, there's, you know, a period of like, oh, I'm going to take these pills on the weekend or um, and doing too much. And so I think that can be exacerbated and not seen as well because of those changes to new normals around, I don't know, I guess, oh, I'm going to think about that a little bit more. I just assume that everyone has trauma. <laughs> so I kind of like keep that as a blank slate. No, I think that's a good response. And I mean, it's just like from the experience and from reading and from all those kind of knowledge, it makes sense for it to be so, you know? Um, but and yeah, like, addiction happens within with like straight people and het people and, you know, just at different rates. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And um, yeah, if you want, we can like start talking about like the transition to kind of like um, what the statistics are in like modern days and how it is in terms of like drug usage for these folks. Yeah. Do you want to like lead into that with some questions or some dialogue amongst yourselves? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So one thing that I found while I was reading was that, um, like I was saying, like stigma of like substance abuse and how homophobia is um, and that experience have influenced like health providers and public authorities. And I feel like that hasn't really helped out with the community from my knowledge um can't really speak on behalf of uh the community but from my knowledge reading about it i feel like all the stigma and like i said homophobia experiences are not alleviating the struggle and the barriers in place as of right now absolutely the the systems in power are so informed by heteronormative and white supremacist standards and not to mention like the needs proving that happens with getting the best insurance for treatment programs and the cost of those if people need them. There's so many factors, structural and like subconscious and social things that go into contributing to reasons why people will go towards drugs or alcohol or whatever addictive behavior to feel better, to escape, to have fun. And sometimes that gets out of control and addiction will really like claw you up in its grasp. And there's numerous studies uh, with, I have to say, limitations because people who like will like sign up for studies or 
have access to treatment and feel safe getting treatment in like these very like white het centric spaces like you don't feel safe and affirmed and having like queer treatment like it's not going to feel safe there's so much medical trauma um, historically like you mentioned earlier and presently within how treatment is seen and I feel like that's why it's so important right to have like these communities because as you can see it is implanted in these institutions and these organizations in our society that makes it really hard for these communities to prosper just because they're so standardized. And so I feel like with the community, it sets kind of a form of protection for these individuals and how it's really important that we continue to do so, you know, and to like help maintain the community for these individuals because that's what they feel safe. And they li- we live in a society that do not really consider that. And so, yeah. Exactly. Yes. It's, it seems like very much a matter of convenience, like, oh, you're supposed to be, you know, the cute, fun, like, queer person in the group (laughs) kind of thing. Um, And when something gets hard, like, eh, well, just work into this social service or just get over it or whatever. Um, And what we know is that folks, LGBTQ folks tend to enter treatment a less, but with more severe substance use disorders and higher rates of co-occurring mental health problems. Um, Like trans teens have higher rates of self-harm, depression, um, suicide rates, excuse me, and eating disorders than cisgender folks of the same age group. Um, and you know, numerous factors, depression, depression, generalized anxiety and trauma related mental health conditions because of bigotry and fear or like actual receiving of violence um, and harassment in the workplace or family or like faith institutions. And that makes trans-friendly, queer-friendly, safe and affirming treatment more important than ever. Yeah, no, those are really good. And I, it's a very deep topic, right? Because I feel like (laughs) it's so complex. There's like the complexity in the topic itself and how we see it and observe it in a society, you know, and from our standpoint, it's very complex. And I think it's like, and I think this is like a good point, you know, um, that we're bringing up and I don't know, I think it's like a good segue too for us to kind of reaffirm these individuals, you know, and kind of telling them how we can protect this culture and protecting the community, but at the same time, keeping them safe with like drug usage, you know, because you said that's how like the nightlife, right. It's like how communities are developed and how, individuals they bond with each other and so I think this is a great point for us to kind of like I don't know shift our gears towards more exciting and something that people can take away for from this is kind of like I don't know reaffirming that there are ways to kind of keep like maintaining the nightlife but at the same time like being safe and that safe integration if that makes sense yes um I want to touch a little bit more on the on some data oh yeah um, go ahead yeah go ahead too. um 
<clears throat> one thing I found during the pandemic is entering into Zoom meetings that, you know, I technically cannot say whether or not I am a member of because uh, they are anonymous. Um, <laughs> there are so many uh, queer folks and trans folks that realized that they were struggling with addiction during the pandemic once they had time to really like think you know we can't couldn't go away with our couldn't run away from ourselves we were all stuck inside for a while and also people who had addictions that they already knew about but realized that they were gay because we had time to be with ourselves and like finding like these intersectional communities and our parts of ourselves um and reckoning with these high rates of both addiction and mental illness. There's some surveys from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, really rolls off the tongue, uh, but treatment gaps in the LGBTQ communities are really pronounced, um, meaning like people who will actually seek out and receive treatment and about 86% of queer individuals who have a substance use disorder don't seek treatment. And that's really intense. That's quite intense about not feeling comfortable with it, with getting the help that can be so deeply needed. Totally. And I, oh, you can go ahead, Amelia. Oh, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I was just gonna say like, it is, it's hard to, um, I guess measure like you can do studies but I mean there's so many other people that are going to be left out of said studies so it is hard to get a bigger picture of everything um without obviously generalizing people in the queer community as well um so I think it is um I think it's important to ask like how exactly is the queer community affected by alcohol and drug use and like how we can shift um our perception of that kind of. Um, so yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to, you know what I'm trying to say? I don't, <laughs> but yeah. Yes, um, definitely some ways that they are affected, that we are affected is that, you know, as we talked about before a little bit, you know, more exposure just makes it a little bit more likely for problematic use and addiction. Um, and on a positive note, more exposure to drugs and nightlife in general can also mean more conversations about and knowledge about safer drug use and safer sex practices and like encouraging use of PrEP, like, like HIV transfer protection. And more and more, especially with successive generations, really focusing on conversations and uplifting mental health and recognizing the growing number of vocal sober queers that help us include everyone and acknowledging our diverse and nuanced experiences helps us become more and more like united because siloing ourselves from our because of our history and how our history has been constructed around like nightlife or emergency services and like i was trying to find like things that weren't just pop up events for queer people that aren't focused around drugs or alcohol or at least not explicitly focused around that. And I couldn't really find any. They either weren't around anymore or just didn't exist like a brick and mortar place. And so having spaces that aren't centered around 
the drug and alcohol use helps create more opportunities for connection and community building. Um, I was talking with one of my favorite professors about this and I was, I was really excited to talk about this stuff with you guys today. Shout out to you, Dr. Sharp. And he's like, yeah, I can't go to Pride with my husband and our young kids anymore because it's just, I don't want them exposed to like tons of like drunk and high people. Like these are like kids under five, you know? Maybe it's not the most comfortable environment. And so whether you're sober or not, like this can help us economically and like support each other's businesses and socially and, you know, more chosen family, you know? that all that good wholesome shit that sort of stuff is not necessarily cultivated in just exclusively drug and alcohol situations you know like there are other opportunities for queer people to connect with each other um in portland Mm -hmm. and um even in like internet spaces as well i think the internet is like a great tool and resource for finding that found family Yes. Oh, I love that. The internet is amazing, especially when you're like part of a marginalized community um, of whatever varying intersections. Uh, and found family in in like queer sober spaces that isn't focused around like a recovery program, whether it's like smart recovery, a 12 stepper or like a recovery dharma or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just like a comfortable social space for anyone who like doesn't want to drink or do drugs or like just have it be a chill space um does that make me sound old to say chill I don't know anymore I don't care (laughs) no I I love it but (laughs) thank you like I have finally in my 30s found the benefit and like blessing of queer sober elders who I wouldn't have found without a 12-step program but like I want to connect with more queer elders because that is so important to connect to our personal history and our social worlds and our communities to become like fully formed people especially you know because we're talking about it sober queers um and speaking of sober queers and just queers in general and helping us live and thrive and stuff. Uh, PSU's pride time, I believe it's at the end of May, um, twist, it's not in June, but there are gonna be different pride events and you know, your boy may or may not be working to create a sober pride event, you know, we'll see. Ooh, exciting. I look forward. Yeah, stay in touch and like email me, you know, I'm going to drop a link. Email me at peerrecovery at pdx.edu. We'll definitely (laughs) put it in the description. Yeah, for the event and also just like there's the lavender graduation if you're graduating this term or, you know, whatever term you are to have a little graduation party with other queers on campus. That's lovely. Yeah, if we can just like list out some of the resources for the queer community, that's great, Amelia. I really forward and I hope everything turns out well with the event and stuff. But um, some of the resources that we found include like, um, what is it? Sorry, Quinn. Um, I'm like trying to read the resources list and I was the one that made the resource list. 
Um, but so we have the city of Portland website, the official city of Portland website, where there are um, resources to kind of recovery and uh, different organizations to support the community. Um, and we'll also link this website to uh, more recovery services in Portland. We have the queer and trans friendly or only recovery meeting. And by the way, all of these links will be down in the description as well. The ones that we're going to be discussing about. Um, yeah. And so we'll have more down if you're interested in looking at them. And there are great descriptions on these websites if you're interested. But um yeah, that was like really good. And I really appreciate you digging deep into this conversation, Amelia, because I understand, like I've mentioned before, it's very complex, very complicated, and not that many people know about this and not that many people talk about it. And so thank you so much for doing such a intense amount of research <laughs> on it. It's very insightful. And I learned a lot from today's conversation. Yeah, same. Thank you so much, Amelia. This was very eye-opening conversation. I hadn't really known a lot about the history of this, so I'm glad to know it now. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for having me. Um, there's just, it's such a rich topic. It is, um, it is. I would agree with that. I really appreciate it. Like I said, like, it's totally fine. And I'm literally going to keep a big chunk of like the historic part of it, because I feel like we all understand that we have some kind of knowledge about how it is nowadays, but I'm pretty sure we barely have any knowledge about the historical aspect of this topic. And I just want to end on a note that if we gorgeous, gorgeous gays, and I've said that before, it's like silly, but it makes me smile every time. Um, if we have such a prolific history of creating ways to connect and create community and movement within this like restrictive puritanical system, we can keep expanding what it means to resist potentially harmful things like not talking about addiction and harmful inter like impacts on intersectional identities within queerness and um, resisting norms against violent new laws or discrimination or you know the lack of queer and trans specific services within life-affirming things like recovery treatment and groups and community. And it takes work and it's so work worth doing. And just shout out if you're, you are not alone, anyone who's listened to this, if you are wanting sober spaces or just fewer queer spots to hang out that aren't focused on getting drunk and smelling like tequila and cigarettes when you get home and like having to shout to be heard and have a conversation with a cutie, you know? it's it can be so much more and we can do it together mm -hmm. absolutely yeah, that's great thank you so much amelia and thank you julie i loved listening in and i don't know i just i'm glad we ended on that happy note because so much of queer history is very devastating and heavy but to know that we're only going to go up is amazing <laughs> yeah for sure well, thank you so much again, Amelia, and thank you, Grace, for being a part of today's episode. I hope both of you have a wonderful rest of the day. Yay! All right, thank bye. You both. Mwah. Yeah, bye. Bye, y'all. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you next week. We at Shack are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, 
free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503-725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth, and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number at 503-725-2800. If you're looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday, or you can download the Campus Well app also, feel free to check out the virtual mind spa experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We'll be including resource links in the episode description, as well as a link to the episode transcript. If you have any questions about health, wellness, shack, or anything we discuss in this podcast, please fill out the Google form in the episode description. Thanks for listening and take care. We'll see you next week on What's Up Wellness from the Third Floor.